Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Stephanie Hanna, a research fellow for the Diabetes Research and Wellness Foundation in the Division of Infection and Immunity at Cardiff University's School of Medicine here in the UK. Stephanie holds a Master of Pharmacy and Pharmacology from the University of Bath and completed her PhD at the same institution, researching the protein SHIP1 and its regulatory effect on T lymphocyte function. Sparking her interest in immunology, Stephanie began her post as a research associate at the University of Cardiff, specifically focusing on immunology in type 1 diabetes, and she's stayed there ever since. Today, Stephanie is involved in numerous projects focusing on several areas of type 1 diabetes, and we shall address these in the following conversation. With two children aged 7 and 11, and after completing a three-year term as chair of governors at a primary school, Stephanie somehow manages to find time to stay up to date. I am very, very impressed. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Stephanie Hanna. It's an honor and pleasure to have you here with us. Well, thank you for having me. So, uh, Steph, can you talk to us about what initially sparked your interest in diabetes after studying pharmacology and immunology? What, what took you down your path? So I think I'd always been interested in autoimmune diseases. When I was in sixth form and during my gap year, I'd worked in nursing homes and I'd come across a lot of people with autoimmune diseases, particularly multiple sclerosis and different forms of arthritis. Um, so that had always been in the back of my mind as I pursued immunology. Um, but then um, it was a happy accident, really, that after I'd completed my PhD and I was looking for uh, a postdoc position in autoimmunity, that I got the chance to work with Colin Diane and Susan Wong um, researching type 1 diabetes. And it was a really exciting opportunity for me because it was a chance to work um, in a group that did everything through from basic cell-based work through to clinical trials, so a real translational medicine group. So, Steph, the majority of our audience at the MJ podcast are healthcare professionals, but some are interested members of the lay public. Can you provide a primer from an immunologic angle to outline the stages of type 1 diabetes and how these stages are currently identified and present in clinical practice. I'm thinking back to when I was in med school, mm-hmm. type 1 diabetes was juvenile onset diabetes and type 2 was later in life and it was non-insulin dependent uh, diabetes in, in the obese. I know things have matured since those ancient days. <laughs> so as an immunologist, so well, the first thing I would say is yes, so 50% of um, diagnosis of type 1 is now in um over 18s so it's not just something you can be diagnosed with in a, as a child but yeah so as an immunologist we can sort of think of sort of three stages well four three stages of autoimmunity so you'll start with a genetic risk of you know possibly even a family history of type 1 diabetes and then stage one is when you've got that autoimmunity against the insulin producing beta cells and we'll know that because you've got two or more um, islet autoantibodies. And stage two is when you start to get destruction of those beta cells. Um, and that results in dysglycemia. But it's pre-symptomatic. We'd know that if we did an all glucose tolerance test, for example. But um, unless you're specifically looking, you wouldn't see it. And then stage three is that onset 
of symptomatic disease. So that's the part where you're you're now insulin dependent. And I guess we have yeah that that's that's the gap between us and um, a lot of clinicians is that what clinicians can recognise is is that stage three when somebody presents um, with type with type one. So currently in clinical practice, they're looking for essentially those four main signs, uh, what we call the four T's, so tired, thirsty, thin, which is unexplained weight loss, and toilet, so um, needing to pass urine a lot, especially at night. And we're hoping um, in the next year or two to be able to meet in the middle a bit and be able to bring in a clinical code for people with uh, pre-symptomatic type 1 diabetes, so those that are multiple autoantibody positive, so that then they can be monitored more closely, offered psychological support, and offered enrolment in suitable clinical trials. Okay. So um, some of your work is using uh, new bioinformatic approaches to analyze antigen-specific responses in clinical trial samples. Sounds intriguing. Can you educate us, please? Oh, yeah. So this, this this is what my fellowship funded by the Diabetes Research and Wellness Foundation is about. So what we really need is like rapid readouts in clinical trials, because currently for immunotherapy trials, type 1 diabetes, the, the endpoint is C-peptide preservation as a measure of endogenous insulin production. And that takes six months to a year to, before you start seeing significant loss or preservation. And it requires really large groups. But we want to be able to monitor the actual response to therapies by the immune system in real time. And all of those long words are essentially what it means. So when I get into bioinformatics, what I'm talking about is those biological data sets that are too big to analyse and graph easily in Excel. So it requires a programming approach for me. And there's the antigen specific is means that rather than it's hard to see changes in the overall immune system people with type 1 diabetes they're basically they have a healthy immune system apart from their autoimmunity so i'm specifically looking for the lymphocytes that subset of the white blood cells that specifically recognize the diabetes autoantigens which just means things that are produced by the beta cells in the pancreas so proteins like proinsulin or gad and my you know and then i'm trying to take so the approach is i'm trying to take a single cell rna sequencing which is being able to look at the gene expression of each of those cells individually being able to um recruit all of those antigen specific cells to enrich them by for example by injecting autoantigens or by using in vitro activation marker assays Okay. And so uh, thank you for that. Um, Another area that you've looked at is the phenotypic analysis of T and B cells in people with type 1 diabetes, also in people who have autoantibodies, but don't progress to diabetes. Can you talk us through all of that? Yeah. So this this is a really interesting project for me. So I was able to demonstrate sort of phenotypic changes, the changes in the appearance and the functions of the lymphocytes from both of those cohorts. And that was really important as those phenotypes have the potential to be used as biomarkers for disease progression and to be able to monitor effectiveness of new immunotherapies. So the people who have autoantibodies but don't develop type 1 diabetes, we call them slow progressors. And they're really interesting to us because they're quite rare and their disease appears to have naturally halted at that stage one when they have the autoantibodies but they're not progressing to dysglycemia. 
And what we see across those groups of slow progressors, healthy donors and people with type 1 diabetes is really quite a complicated pattern of expression of different inflammatory chemokines in their receptors and also different balances between regulatory T-cells in the immune system and the T-cells that actually kill the insulin-producing beta cells. So do we know why these people are slow progress? What What is it in, in simple terms, because I'm a simpleton, why is it that they don't progress or are well, slow progressors? Mm, so we, we, we think that there's, there's a whole range of reasons, some of which we don't fully understand. So interestingly, some of these people even after a couple of decades of being multiple autoantibody positive, will then tip over into diabetes. And that's interesting to us. But a lot of them, when we look at them, and I did some work with um, a colleague, Joe Balderson down in Exeter, is we've been able to show, for example, that they have no, probably no more regulatory T cells than other people, but that their effective T cells, the ones that would do the killing, are more sensitive to suppression by regulatory T cells. So it, I think there's lots of little bits of the puzzle that contribute to these people being resistant to developing um, overt type 1 diabetes. Could, it, could, this, um, could this lead to uh, insights as to how we can slow the progression of the disease? Yeah, definitely, because we're, we're, we're looking, you know, there's a whole range of immunotherapies that are in clinical trials, and they all involve sort of subtly adjusting the immune system. So what we don't want to do with people with diabetes is to go for full-on immunosuppression, because these are often people that have been diagnosed in childhood, and you can't go through your whole life with a very severe um, immunosuppression regime. So we're looking at, we're always looking for ways to subtly tweak the immune system back to, um, back to, back to a, a normal level, you know, a level equivalent to what we'd find in um, healthy donors. Right. So let's move on to, um, uh, on to treatment. Can you outline the current state of immunotherapies for the treatment of di- type 1 diabetes and, and update us on clinical trials you've been involved with in this area? Oh, sure. So, so in terms of the current treatments, say tiplizumab, which is anti-CD3 monoclonal antibody, that's been licensed in the United States. And um, we hope that it will shortly be licensed here in the UK as well. And that's been shown to delay the onset of insulin dependency in type 1 diabetes by sort of at least two years, or by I should say, by a median of at least two years. And then there's a pipeline of other monoclonal antibodies that are in clinical trials. Um, and also um, other agents, for example, JAK inhibitors. So you may have seen baricitinib from the Bandit trial in Australia. And actually... Tell, tell, tell us about that. I'm, I'm actually quite interested in the, the, the JAK inhibitors. Yeah, so, um, so JAK inhibitors are small molecule inhibitors of uh, JAK, which is um, an intracellular kinase, Janus kinase. And um, many of those JAK inhibitors are already licensed, for example, to be able to treat rheumatoid arthritis because we know that they can modulate um, immune cell functions. Um, and what that BANDIT trial was was able to show is that they can, they can be effective in slowing the progression of type 1 diabetes and that they were also really well tolerated in people as well. Um, And then, yeah, another example would be uh, verapamil being repurposed um, 
in clinical trials looking at whether it can slow the progression of, of type 1 diabetes as well. So for that that's at the distant uh, edge of my brain. Remind us, remind me for sure. Yes. So, so I mean, yes. I mean, I went all the way, all the way back to um, back to my my pharmacology undergraduate degree um, because I, I, you know, it, it's a oh, but it's a calcium channel blocker. Um, so again, we're not, we're not, you know, people are still exploring the underlying mechanisms of how that may um, slow the progression of type one diabetes. Um, but again, it's great to see these drugs that are cheap and readily available and where we already have a well-defined safety protocol being able to be used in clinical trials. Um, and then in terms of the ones that I'm directly working on myself, um, I'm involved in the Ustakinumab trial, which is, um, uh, so that's the Ustakid trial. So that's Ustakinumab, um, a monoclonal antibody that's previously been used to treat psoriasis. Um, my colleague Daniela Tashvik presented some of that preliminary data at the Immunology of Diabetes Society Congress um, last year, and we're now working on preparing that immunological data for publication. Um, and I'm also working on quite an exciting study that we commenced last week, um, funded by the Helmsley Charitable Trust, and there we're looking at an antigen-specific immunotherapy. So we're looking at injecting escalating doses of um, soluble GAD peptides and trying to use some of those single cell RNA seq techniques to um, profile changes in the immune system and in the antigen specific immune cells. So, yeah, lots of exciting things going on. Absolutely. Um, so. Going back to the immune uh, response, in measuring the immune response in type 1 diabetes patients, what challenges did you uncover and how do you hope that current research will help tackle these? Yeah, so one of the main challenges that we've all been battling against is how rare those autoantigen-specific cells are. So we can think of those antigen-specific T cells in the peripheral blood uh, being about 0.01% of the total. So that makes it incredibly difficult to track those cells and to monitor them. So that's that's really where we'd be working on those those in sort of from two directions. So enriching them. So through things like activation induced marker assays and a lot of my approaches that involve intradermal injections of autoantigens into the skin to be able to recruit and enrich the cells in the skin in the skin draining lymph node. And then the sort of the second prong of that is using these very sensitive uh, techniques such as single cell RNA sequencing. So once we have these cells, to really be able to profile them in detail so we understand exactly what's going on with them. And really what we hope that the current research is going to do, I mean, there's there's other groups that work on on you know working on different clinical trials and we're all sort of trying to come together and build a consensus, especially using the single cell RNA seq about these very specific phenotypes and what we hope is that the current research will enable us to track those cells through the clinical trials and see how they respond to all different kinds of immunomodulation. Um, I guess another challenge that we've uncovered is really how diverse the T-cell receptors are that recognise antigens on beta cells and how diverse the different targets on the beta cells are and that's a real challenge for us when we want to use those T-cell receptors as biomarkers. So I spend a lot of time um, with my um, research associate 
um, validating those T cell receptor sequences as being truly specific for diabetes autoantigens in the lab. And something that we're really hoping to work on is building big databases of T cell receptors that we can then examine, for example, with new machine learning tools so that we're better able to use them as biomarkers. Right. Okay. AI machine learning seems exactly. to find its way yeah. everything, doesn't it? Everything. Yes, um, it's, it's, very, it's very exciting. It's very exciting to well, us. Well, yeah, it's exciting. But I, I was reading up about some of the, the flaws. There was one, uh, um, a car company, I'm not going to mention the make, but their chatbot agreed to sell a car for $1, a new car for $1 to someone. And then a delivery service chatbot was convinced by a user who was obviously a little bit mischievous uh, to convince the chatbot to tell him that actually this company was probably the worst delivery company. <laughs> I love, I personally love that. When, yes. When... <laughs> yes, I can definitely see. And I think that that's one of the things that I'm really passionate about is, is having both sides of the coin. So being able to collaborate with people that really understand data and machine learning and AI and um, sequencing techniques, but also me being able to bring that side of it that's underpinned by the, the very basic immunology that can, yes. I, I will, I, you know, that I can understand a meaningful result when I see it. And it is really important for us, you know, when you're feeding anything into AI or machine learning, that you understand the biases of what, of what you're inputting. Yeah. So, you know, in terms of our patient cohorts and their demographics, um, and also, you know, in the techniques that we've used to yeah. isolate the antigen-specific cells. So, that, that, yeah, there is a lot to think about as well as to be excited by. So. Yeah, absolutely. And with all such things, garbage in, garbage out. So uh, <coughs> nothing's changed there. So um, moving away from biomarkers and the immune system ever so slightly, can you talk about your work with the UK Type 1 Diabetes Research Consortium and how healthcare professionals can get involved in a study or screening initiative? Yeah, so, so the consortium, so we're a mix of so clinical professionals such as consultants and research nurses and then basic scientists like myself who can analyse the samples. And what the consortium can do is we can deliver clinical trials for type 1 diabetes immunotherapy across multiple sites in the UK. And so they've got treatment trials going on, but also monitoring studies and screening studies. So, yeah, essentially for, for healthcare professionals, so if a site was be interested in being added, they can approach the consortium so that they can take part in these multi-centre clinical trials. Or if you have a patient newly diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, you can direct them to our website and they can see what studies are currently available for enrolment and where their nearest site would be for those. Um, well, we will um, we, we, we can add uh, some links perhaps in the show notes uh, to help support this sort of uh, activity. Very, very important. So... Uh, mentioning studies you're involved in an exciting study where anyone in the uk can enroll to check their antibody status subsequently revealing their likelihood of developing diabetes can you please tell us about this and why and how people can get involved with that yeah so that that goes back to what i was telling you a bit earlier so if you're positive for two or more of these auto antibodies 
um, you have a very high likelihood of developing type 1 diabetes within the next few years. So there's two studies that can measure those. So there's ELSA, and yeah, I can give you the links to put in later. Um, so that's for children aged 3 to 13 years. And then there's TDRA, which is T1DRA. And that's for people aged 18 to 70 years. And essentially, that's open to anybody that wants to go to those websites and sign up. You register online, they send a kit in the post with a finger prick blood test. And then you go from there, essentially. If the finger prick blood test suggests you may be autoantibody positive, they will offer follow up to confirm with a venous blood test. And then um, that, that opens up for people, you know options of enrolling in, in any clinical trials that may be available, but also getting a really valuable education and psychological support. It, are there any data to suggest if you tell someone um, you're at risk because you've got this? I mean, I'm just thinking as a surgeon dealing with people and trying to give them health advice and they're just basically in one, in one ear and out the other. Um, and, you know, they may be overweight, they may not do any exercise, their diet may be horrific. Do you think some, are there any data suggest that if you tell someone you've got this and you've got a very high risk and changing your lifestyle might really help you, um, certainly with outcomes, if not get actually getting the disease, um, are there any data to suggest that that makes a damn bit of difference? Yes, yeah, sure. So, so you can't, once you're on that trajectory, you can't alter it. And also there's nothing, we're really keen that nobody blames themselves and the parents don't blame themselves for their children developing type yeah, of course. but what we do know for example from the teddy study is that if you're able to tell people that they have a very high chance of getting type 1 diabetes that you can educate them about the early signs of type 1 diabetes and that when they do develop type 1 diabetes they are less likely to um, present in dka and they're less likely to find it traumatic um, because you've got that window where you can educate everybody about what the treatment is going to involve um and they can they can take that chance to inform themselves before it's actually a medical emergency and they're in a and e so it, it is it is really useful even if you choose not to um be involved in a clinical trial people have reported that they find it very helpful and what's the website i know we can put it on the link but what's the website okay so there's two websites so elsa is e-l-s-a so it's elsa diabetes nhs.uk and then tdra is t1dra.bristol.ac.uk okay and we will put t t1dra so folks take a note of that and we'll put it in the show notes and presumably the data you'll get from this will be valuable data as well for and presumably it's all de-identified from uh the central locations perspective yes Yes, yes, yes. So, for example, so Path Narendran um, in Birmingham is leading is leading the ELSA study. So, yeah, and any of that data is anonymised before it before it comes out to any research like that. And that's the same for any of the clinical clinical trials, unless unless I'm doing an immunotherapy trial where um, a participant specifically asks to meet me to so they can understand more about scientific side of the research because i'm always happy to go along and chat to the participants but unless they ask for that i i never see any um patient data that's not anonymized it is online yeah okay great well as i say we'll stick that in the show notes and i think i personally may sign up 
nice to know than not know. Um, So you're also interested in the immunology of thyroid eye disease, which is yet another thing I know precious little about. Can you give us maybe a 10,000 foot view? Sure. Yeah. So Graves disease is another autoimmune disease, and that's where autoantibodies bind and activate um, a receptor on the thyroid, causing it to be overactive. So some people with that uh, Graves disease then go on to develop thyroid eye disease, and that's where the fat around the eye proliferates, and it pushes out the eye and crushes the optic nerve, and it's very painful. There's not a huge array of treatments currently available. And we also don't really know what triggers this, why some people with Graves' disease get it, some people don't, some people get it immediately that they develop Graves' disease, and some people develop it several years down the line. So um, I've just been awarded um, a grant from Fight for Sight and the Thyroid Eye Disease Charitable Trust to investigate that the autoimmune process that's happening in the orbital fat. So I'm particularly interested in how the B cells that produce antibodies infiltrate into that tissue and how they stimulate fibroblasts in the orbital fat. And what we're really hoping to learn from that is how we can tell who's at risk and develop leads for possible new therapies that can block that stimulation. So um, of some concern, type Mm. 1 diabetes cases are still missed in both adults and children and such undiagnosed cases might lead to death. How do you feel the medical world as a whole, both healthcare professionals and researchers, can combat this, well, you would think highly preventable loss of life? Yeah, sure. So I think what we really like healthcare professionals to do is to really think about type 1 diabetes when they're seeing people present with, you know, so those classical 40s that we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. and then other things about poor wound healing and um, vision loss and repeated infections and that kind of thing to always think about type 1 diabetes because it's so easy just to rule it in or out with a with a blood test and to think about it even in adults because like I mentioned to you you get 50% of diagnosis of type 1 are in people at age over 18 and to al- also to always treat it as an emergency if, if you're thinking it could be type 1 that's something you want to deal with right that very same day right now not in an appointment in a couple of weeks time um, and then I guess the other the other thing for us that we're, we're quite interested in we, um, the consortium has produced some guidance about is how when you when you've got an adult presenting with t- diabetes about how you decide am I going to pursue type one am I going to do some antibody testing or am I going to treat as type two so for example there's always examples of misdiagnosis of type one as type two so Theresa May is the classic example of that so she was initially diagnosed with type two diabetes before they realized that that was incorrect and she actually had type 1. Um, And then I guess the final thing for us is to be able to advise people with a family history of the risks correctly so that they are are aware of the risks and and they're looking for symptoms and can take advantage of these screening programs if they they would like to. And for the benefit of those who uh, um, are overseas or weren't paying attention for five minutes, Theresa May was British Prime Minister period of time um so I didn't know that I didn't know she was a diabetic so um finally Steph a question that I always like to ask my guests if you were granted three wishes for the future in your area of healthcare and diabetes or frankly anything what would those wishes be yeah so so the 
the strap line for the type 1 diabetes um, consortium is moving towards insulin-free type 1 diabetes. And so that would be my overall wish. And if I was going to break it down into into three, I would say it would be population-wide screening. So we know who's, who's at that high risk. Um, effective immunotherapies that are suitable for pre-symptomatic type 1 diabetes and then robust immune monitoring strategies so we really need to know once we've got those immune even once we've got those immunotherapies we need to be monitoring people checking that their type 1 diabetes you know is truly not progressing and being able to switch them onto a different immunotherapy if, if need be so those would be my three wishes i think very focused and hopefully very achievable. And um, yes. when you've when you've done all that, you must come back and tell us what your next three are. <laughs> I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. I'd like to thank you, Dr. Stephanie Hanna, for being with us today. Absolute pleasure to speak to you, and I should be keeping a close eye on your research. And we will put those things in the show notes and encourage all our listeners to get tested. You're helping science. You're helping yourself. So again, Steph, thanks so much. Well, thank you ever so much for having me. You're welcome. So folks, please subscribe so you never miss an episode. Check out the archives. There's loads of great content on there. Tell your friends, like us on social media, blah, blah, blah. You know the score. And join us next week for another fascinating episode of the EMJ podcast. I'm Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Please, everyone, stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now. Bye for now.